May the grace and truth of Jesus Christ be with you all. There is on Facebook and Twitter and on the Internet what is known as a well-known tweet that has been retweeted countless times. In this tweet, Tim Keller says, It is impossible to have met the real Jesus and be indifferent. You either bow down in wonder or go away offended. And that is precisely what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead at Bethany. Some people bowed down in wonder and others went away offended. Many who saw the sign believed that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But some who saw the sign disbelieved and devised a way to kill him because they thought that he was merely a revolutionary leader. Our sermon text for today is quite brief. It is John eleven forty-five to 54. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand and listen to God's holy word as we pick up our story in the Gospel of John. The word of God is living and active, and this is what the word of God says. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but it being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. That is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Now, as all of you know, Bo and I had the opportunity to attend and graduate from Redeemer Seminary just a few short years ago. And for my part, it was one of the better experiences of my life. And yet I have to remind myself that it was also one of the most challenging experiences. When we arrived, there were all of these new people from different Christian traditions, learning the same truths and reading the same fat books and drinking the same stale coffee and debating the same old things like baptism and end times and taking the same Greek and Hebrew quizzes. Intellectually, the languages were by far the most difficult parts of seminary. And if Bo were here, he would be able to tell you that he and I laugh all the time about the different things that we all said and did in those courses. I laugh repeatedly about the time that 
Bo read a translation of a Greek text. It was his translation, and this is how he read it. Me go before you. That's how he understood that text. Me go before you. But I also cringe when I think about all of the red ink that was smeared across my Hebrew quizzes. These were humbling times for us. All of us, all of our fellow seminarians tended to struggle with the languages in one way or another, except for one or two students who seemed to have what can only be described as the spiritual gift of parsing verbs. Their minds seemed to absorb the vocabulary and the conjugations and all of the jots and the tittles and the syntax, while my mind simply juggled those things in the air for a few minutes and then dropped them to the ground. All of that to say is that we were faced weekly with the gloomy reality of our relative weaknesses in biblical languages. And it was so bad at times that there were moments when we would jokingly yet prayerfully request of our professor that he would allow us to take what seminarians like to call a champion exam. If you don't know what a champion exam is, let me explain it for you. A champion exam has its roots in the ancient Near East, in those stories of warfare in which armies would line up for battle. And instead of both armies engaging in warfare and experiencing tremendous loss and bloodshed, each army would send a champion out to face one another. And the winner of that contest would win that battle on behalf of their side. And so when we applied it to Hebrew, we were simply saying, let us take the best student from our class to take the Hebrew exam on our behalf. And whatever grade she earns will be the grade that she earns for herself and for all of us. By the way, her name is Pauline Bish, and she went on to teach Hebrew at our seminary before moving on to pursue her Ph.D. in Semitic languages at Notre Dame. So we found our champion. But the good Dr. Groff never even entertained our humble requests. It is likely that Dr. Groff simply agreed with Caiaphas, the high priest, that you know nothing at all. Except he obviously did not share Caiaphas's view that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And that brings us back into the story of John 11. I want to draw your attention to that phrase. It is better for you that one man should die for the people. But before we unpack that phrase, I want to develop the backstory a little bit more. The Jewish leaders were all at their wits end with Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we have seen how they were going to arrest him but didn't. And they were going to stone him, but didn't. And then they were going to kill him, but didn't. Up to this point in the story, we get the impression that they have been all bark and no bite. And all the while, Jesus has been growing more and more popular with the masses. He has healed the lame. He has opened the eyes of the blind. He has fed the hungry. He has raised the dead. He has even confronted the religious establishment. And all of these things have been done in public. And still public opinion about Jesus was mixed. There were people who said, 
he's a prophet. We should listen to him. And others said, he's a madman. We should get rid of him. And then a few said, he is the Christ. He's our Savior. Now the Jewish leaders were fully aware that the Romans had a zero-tolerance policy towards revolutionaries. They knew that any spark of revolt would be snuffed out with extreme prejudice. In their history, they had dealt with their fair share of revolutionaries who would show up out of left field. They would claim to be the Messiah. They would gather a following and then they would flame out in their conflict with the Roman military industrial complex. So the Jewish leaders at their wits end gather in their council meeting, the Sanhedrin. And this group of men are trying to figure out what they can do with Jesus. What's the best course of action? They want to come up with a plan that will do two things. One, that will keep the Romans out of their business and off of their backs. And two, a plan that will get rid of Jesus without drawing too much attention. Now, if we could pause for a moment, I'd like to insert a little bit of uh, pastoral concern commentary in this section. It's easy for us to hear, oh, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him and then pretend that we would never do that and that they are the bad guys and we're the good guys. But I want to remind you that they are not the only ones in human history who ever wanted to get rid of Jesus. Lots of people want to get rid of Jesus. Lots of professing Christians want to get rid of Jesus. Perhaps even some of you would like to get rid of Jesus. Lots of people want to get rid of Jesus. Get him out of their consciousness and away from their hearts and out of their lives and perhaps even out of their congregations. Jesus agitates us. He bothers us just like he bothered those people. So there are people who don't want Jesus messing with their life and shaking things up. They don't like Jesus teaching them what to do or showing them how to live. They want to get rid of him in some way. And one of the main reasons they want to get rid of him is because they don't want to lose their place, whatever that place is. They don't want to lose their prerogative, their right to choose, their right to decide for themselves. They don't want to lose those things. And strangely enough, many of them, just like the Jewish leaders, acknowledge that Jesus has done amazing things for many people. And yet that's not good enough. They're afraid that they might actually come to believe in Jesus if they let Jesus go on doing the things he's doing in their life or in their community or in their family. And they're afraid that if that happens, they're afraid that if Jesus ever actually takes root in their heart, then they will suffer a different set of consequences, similar to the consequences the Jews feared from the Romans. They are afraid that perhaps some powerful, secular Americans will come and take away their pride or put them to shame or embarrass them in some way. So like the Jewish leaders, these People, whoever they are, perhaps some of you, secretly plot 
and scheme and devise ways in the darkness to get rid of Jesus, to drive them out of sight, to delete him from their memory, even if it, may, even if it means killing him with the help of wicked people. The way they accomplish it is the way the Jewish leaders accomplished it. They get some well-respected experts to authenticate their thoughts, some well-known celebrities to legitimize their feelings. And now they feel empowered and justified to get rid of Jesus once and for all. I'm not the only one who feels this way. Look at these experts. Look at these celebrities, these personalities. See, we're all in cahoots. That's precisely what happened in this story. You see, the Pharisees and the priests are saying, what are we going to do with Jesus? We don't know what to do with him. We, don't, we can't make heads or tails of this guy. And look at all the trouble that's going to come upon us. And so they go and express their political concerns to Caiaphas, the high priest. And in response, the priest rebukes them and then reveals his own deep thoughts on the matter. You don't know anything at all. Don't you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation? Now on the surface, it looks like Caiaphas the high priest is just offering some pragmatic solution to fix this very dicey political situation. But I want to remind you that that is not the role of the high priest. According to God's word, the high priest was supposed to teach the people of God the law of God. And he was supposed to give wise counsel and godly advice to those who consulted him. His primary responsibility and role was to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins. And he was supposed to be compassionate. Sympathetic, able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Why? Because he himself was beset with weaknesses common to man. And yet we see in this story that Caiaphas is actually a much better politician than he is a priest. He's not leading the people to worship and serve God according to the scriptures. He is simply trying to help them negotiate a very difficult situation. In other words, he's a good mediator between Romans and Jews, but he is a bad mediator between God and sinners. So yes, we see him offering counsel to those who asked, and yet it is wicked counsel. And although he is supposed to deal gently with those that he deemed to be ignorant and wayward, you see that he is actually dealing harshly with Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that he was right in thinking that Jesus was ignorant and wayward, that he was a problem child and that he needed God's help. I'm not I'm not saying that Caiaphas was right, but I'm saying from the point of view of a high priest, had he been doing his duty, he would have dealt with Jesus differently. But he is not treating Jesus the way a priest would treat a sinner. He is treating Jesus the way a politician deals with a rival. And so he comes up with this plan, a plan to get rid of Jesus. Now, you know as well as I do that in the story, it is Jesus who has been walking with God in peace and in righteousness and turning many away from sin. But Caiaphas in this story is turning aside from the way and causing many to stumble by his teaching 
and his counsel. He's not keeping God's ways, but he is showing partiality and favoritism in his instructions. Here's another important thing to know about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Which means that he was sad, you see. It means that he was a politically motivated secular humanist. Sadducees were functional atheists. They believed in man. They did not believe in God. They did not believe that angels, spirits, or demons existed. They did not believe in anything non-material or extrasensory. For a Sadducee, if they couldn't perceive it with their senses or prove it with science, it didn't happen, it didn't exist, it wasn't real. And all of that is ironic because according to the Apostle John, who was guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit, when Caiaphas gave his counsel to the Sanhedrin, he actually prophesied about the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, he spoke by the Holy Spirit. In one commentary, an author says, what concerns the evangelist John here above all is that Israel's highest official with all of his authority associated with his office spoke of Jesus' death as the only way in which people could be saved. John wants it to be clear to us that Israel had to hear from the lips of its own high priest that the only way we can be saved is through the death of Jesus Christ. Now obviously, Caiaphas meant that for evil, and yet God meant it for good. Caiaphas prophesied two things about Jesus that we need to learn tonight. One is that Jesus would die for the nation. The little word for there is so important. I can't stress to you how important that word is. That little word means on behalf of or in place of the nation. The second thing Caiaphas prophesied is that Jesus would gather into one all the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, this prophetic word uttered by a wicked priest is a perfect example of how God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. It's just another reminder that if God can speak through the mouth of an ass, he can speak through the mouth of anyone. Just ask Balaam's donkey. So in Caiaphas double edged prophecy. He's not giving us new information. He's not giving us new revelation. He is simply echoing prophecies made by the prophets in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of, of examples. These are well-known passages to many of you. Isaiah, the prophet, prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation when he said, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they shall see and that which they have not heard they will understand 
And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jeremiah the prophet also prophesied that Jesus would gather God's people and save the nation when he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries which I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And Ezekiel the prophet also prophesied that Jesus would gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad when he said, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel and one king shall be king over them all and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And even John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see that Caiaphas's double-edged prophecy was not new to him. It was given to him by revelation. And he echoed the prophecies made by the prophets of the Old Testament. But notice this. He's also echoing the prophecies made by Jesus Christ in his public ministry. Jesus himself prophesied that he would die for the nations and for the nation and that he would gather the scattered children of God when he said, this is how God loved the world. And he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He also said, I give my flesh for the life of the world. And I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. And finally, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, all of these prophecies have one thing in common. They all agree 
that it is better for one man to die on behalf of the many, for one to die in the place of all, for the righteous one to die for the unrighteous many. They all agree on that principle. Now to help you understand a little bit better the notion of one dying for the many, let me use an example from pop culture. Many of you are probably familiar with the story of the Hunger Games, the Hunger Games trilogy. In the world of that story, there is something called a reaping. It is an annual event that takes place in every district of Pan Am before each Hunger Game, where the tributes of the upcoming games are randomly chosen. Tributes are two young people from each district, a male and a female, who represent each district in the games. In the context of the story, if someone chooses, they may volunteer to take the place of a tribute who is selected. So in the story, Katniss Everdeen volunteers as tribute to protect her sister Prim. And then later on, Peter, Peter Malark volunteers as tribute so that he can go and protect Katniss. Now you don't need to know all of that, all of those details. The point I want you to see is that they deliberately and intentionally volunteered to participate in the games on behalf of someone they loved, on behalf of someone they cared about. In other words, they willingly laid down their lives for people they loved in their district. And in that little story, you see an example of what one dying for the many looks like. As mentioned earlier, the notion of one person representing many is as old as mankind. We see this principle played out in the ancient Near East, even in Israel among God's people. You know very well the story of David and Goliath and how two opposing armies line up on the ridge of a valley. A champion from one army goes down, a giant named Goliath, who taunts the armies of Israel, begging them to send a champion down to fight him. Day after day, he stands out there taunting the armies of Israel until finally a shepherd boy comes. And he goes out in the name of the Lord with a sling and some stones, and they square off. Each army has sent its champion out to fight as a representative of the whole army. Both armies, the captains, the generals of each army, the kings over them are, are, are saying, it is better for one to die than for all of us to perish. And when the shepherd boy becomes a giant killer, the whole army of Israel becomes giant killers. Why? Because the representative of their army has conquered their enemy. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied that it is better for one man to die on behalf of the many, for one to die in the place of all. And while he meant that politically, God meant it theologically. The Jewish leaders agreed with him. And so John tells us that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And so Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, which means double fruitfulness. And there he stayed with his disciples. Man does not live on bread alone. Man lives on every word 
that comes from the mouth of God. Why do these words matter? What do we learn in this strange little footnote to the ministry of Jesus? We're learning that like the Hebrews, Jesus is going on an exodus. He is leaving the barren center of Egypt, Jerusalem, and he is moving out to the fruitful margins of the desert, Ephraim. That like Judah, he is now going into exile with his disciples. And as he moves away from the temple and away from Jerusalem, we see once again the glory of the Lord departing from the temple, this time once for all. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to follow him wherever he goes. We are to say to him, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. This is what it means to be in communion with Jesus Christ. Now, as we come near the end of this sermon, I want to pose a personal question to you. Do you agree or do you disagree that it is better for you that one man should die for the people? Is it better that one man should die for the people? Is it better for you that one man should die for you? And the way you answer that question will go a long way towards telling whether you are truly a Christian or not. It'll go a long way towards telling whether you truly understand the gospel of grace or not. And here's why. If you disagree that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, consider the alternative. That you must affirm that it is better for you that you should die for yourself. That it is better for your people that everyone else should die for himself or herself. If you disagree that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, consider the alternative. You must also agree that it is better for all the people of the whole nation or race to perish in their sins without a savior, without a tribute without a champion. That it is better for you that no one should die for you in your place, on your behalf, for your sins. That it is better for your people that no one should die for them. In other words, you and you alone will die for you and you will die for your own sins. Is that better? But if you agree that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, then you must also be willing to confess with your mouth and be able to believe in your heart that it was better for Jesus to die for you than for you to die for yourself. It was better for Jesus to die for you than for you to die for Jesus. Otherwise, you will die in your sins and perish. 
Let me make things a little simpler. If you disagree that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, you're under the law. The law says the soul that sins must die and every man must die for his own sins. But if you agree that it is better that one man die for the people, then you're under the gospel. And the gospel says that one man must die for all so that all men may live for the one man. The question I want to pose to you is, which one do you believe from your heart? Law or gospel? We've said it many times in our years together that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And we see in this story another example of God drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. That what Caiaphas intended for evil, God intended for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are to this day. And those who are kept alive are those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are those who look to Jesus and say, it was better for you. It was better for me that you should die for my sins. It was better for Jesus to die for you than it is for you to die for him or to die for your own sins. And in this way, John has set us up for what we're about to see is the last week of Jesus' life. So we have to turn our attention to the Passover and consider what the Passover means and who Jesus is and what he has done. Let us remember that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins and mine.